Good morning. The privilege to have this opportunity to open up God's Word with you. Uh, before we begin, I'm going to pray for us one more time briefly. Let's pray. Father, we open our mouths and pant because we long for your commandments. Turn to us and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. Speak to us now through your word that we would embrace the living hope that there is in none other than Jesus Christ, your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Meet Alan. Alan and his wife, Cheryl, have been happily married for 30 years. They have three well-adjusted adult children who are all well on their way to being successful in life. Uh, Though Alan and Cheryl have had a a few hard seasons sprinkled in their three decades together, on the whole, they've had a happy marriage. They have everything they could want in life. Uh, Together, they bring home enough money to enable them to live very comfortably. Uh, They have a 5,000-square-foot home in an upper-middle-class suburb that's almost paid off. They drive the cars they want to drive. They take the trips they want to take. Though they're approaching retirement, their investments have done well enough that they'll be able to maintain the same quality of life even when they're not working. Meet Beverly. Beverly is a 30-year-old businesswoman. She has experienced success at every stage of her professional life since getting out of college. She's embraced the modern mindset, uh, delaying getting married and having kids because she has goals she wants to achieve in the workplace and because she's having a lot of fun. Her free time is filled with partying in the city, weekend getaways with friends, and with her ample vacation time, she's able to travel around the world. Meet Jason. Jason's a senior at the University of Maryland. Uh, Because of his hard work in high school, Jason received an academic scholarship to college and he hasn't wasted the opportunity. He's finishing as valedictorian of his class and that after living a fairly charmed life throughout his years in college. He was part of a great fraternity, had tons of friends, has a girlfriend he loves and because of his work in computer science, he's getting a full ride to grad school and is well on his way to living the American dream. Though these are fictional people, they also aren't. You and I encounter people like this every day. And for some of us, they are our family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. My question for you is why should any of these people choose to follow Jesus? Now recognize I'm I'm speaking to a room full of predominantly Christians, and most of you are probably listing off all sorts of reasons in your mind of why they should follow Jesus. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you to put yourself in their shoes. See the world through their eyes. Look at the life they have, and now ask yourself, what would cause them to want to follow Jesus? Why should anyone abandon the freedom of living for themselves, of pursuing their own dreams, and of seeking as much possible happiness, comfort, and fun this world has to offer? What would possess someone to do that? Well, in our passage this morning, 
we'll actually find three reasons why Alan, Beverly, and Jason should give up the lives they're living to follow Jesus. Three reasons why the people you encounter on a daily basis should follow Jesus, people who may be your family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. So I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. We're looking at chapter 1, and today we're going to be looking specifically at verses 3 through 5. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on page 1014. And as always, we want to encourage you that if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want to ask you to take the Bible that we provided as a gift from us to you. I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5 now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The reason why people like Alan and Cheryl, Beverly and Jason should follow Jesus, the reason why people like your neighbors, coworkers, family, and friends should give up living for themselves and live for Jesus is because only Jesus can provide that which every human heart most deeply longs for. Only through Jesus can we experience true personal change, real hope, and a secure future. If you're taking notes, those three things will serve as the main points of my message today. Through Jesus, we can experience true personal change, real hope, and a secure future. So first, only through Jesus can we experience true personal change. Change. Look again with me at verse 3. Peter starts by praising God because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. If you're not a Christian and your understanding of Christianity has been culturally conditioned by news outlets like CNN, or MSNBC, or Fox News, then that description of being born again may make you recoil a little bit, because in America, at least, born-again Christians are typically portrayed as religious zealots and Bible thumpers who all share the same political views. But when you strip away the cultural conditioning that's happened to that label, and you go back to Scripture, where the description of being born again is found, you find not a label for a particular way of living, but a rich, multi-layered, and beautiful description of the true personal change that God offers to all people through his son, Jesus. You see, Peter here in 1 Peter 1 isn't the person who came up with the born-again label, right? Peter, as he does throughout his later letter, is just drawing on Jesus' teaching in the past. It was Jesus who first used this label when he was describing mankind's need for true personal change, right? But when in, in, our, in our modern society, 
when we talk about true personal change, often our minds go to things like, I wish I was more organized. Uh, I, I wish I was more disciplined, or I would like to be more efficient with my time and, and, and get more things done. But that is not the type of change that Jesus had in mind when he talked about our need to be born again. The change that we need that he had in mind was more radical than that, more at the root than that, more serious than that. When Jesus described our need to be born again, he was actually drawing on passages from the Old Testament that look forward to the day when God would cleanse his people of their sins and give them a new heart and a new nature, making them new creations, causing them to be born again. And according to Jesus, the reason we need a new nature is because we come into the world with a corrupt nature. And out of that corrupt nature come things like lying, lust, anger, hatred, jealousy, greed, and, and so on. I, I don't know if this is a direct quote or not, but I once heard that there's more empirical evidence for the doctrine of original sin than any other Christian doctrine. All you have to do is look around the world and say, something is wrong with all of us. Like, if I asked you, do you think that there is a perfect person living in the world today who has no sins whatsoever to speak of, has never thought a bad thought? Your obvious answer would be no, because you know what I know, that everyone's just like you and just like me. All of us come into the world with a corrupt nature. We look around, and there's evidence for this corruption everywhere. It's in broken relationships, in crime statistics, in wars, in oppression, and injustice. But here's the thing. The evidence for our corrupt nature isn't just out there, right? It's also in each of our hearts as well. My heart and yours. I recognize that some of you may take issue with that. Maybe you say, I I don't care what you say. That's not me, Pastor. To which I would respond with the words of Ben Stiller playing White Goodman in Dodgeball, a movie I'm not recommending, by the way. But what he said was just so appropriate when he spoke to Vince Vaughn's character when he said, I mean, come on. I know you, you know you, I know that you know that I know you. None of us can evade or, or, or dodge, thinking of dodgeball, the, the charge that we have a corrupt nature if we're honest with ourselves. If we sit down alone by ourselves in the quiet of our hearts and look within and look at our past actions, our past words, our past thoughts, all that we've done throughout the course of our lives, we would have to agree. We're corrupt. Something isn't right with us. Even if your life is going swimmingly, like you're just killing it, you have everything you need, you're comfortable, I know that you know that something's not right. And not because I'm a psychic, but because we all know something's not right with us. We desire things we know we shouldn't desire. We do things we know that we shouldn't do. We say things we know that we shouldn't say. We think things that we know we shouldn't think. We need a new nature. We need to be born again. 
The problem is we recognize this, and what most people do who recognize that something needs to change is they start making changes. They stop watching things that encourage sinful behaviors. They stop hanging out with friends who are a bad influence on them, and they make bad decisions when they're with those friends. They, they make changes to their external environment while failing to realize that the problem isn't out there, but in here. It's like a, a, a farmer. Imagine this with me. You have an apple farmer, and he's got one tree. He's not much of a farmer, but he has one tree. And that tree, come harvest time, produces only rotten apples. That's all that's on the tree. And so what does he do? He goes to the tree and he's like, it's only rotten apples. He cuts all the rotten apples off, goes to the store, buys a bunch of bags of good apples and brings them home and tapes them to the tree. Well, all failing to realize that the tree only produces rotten apples. He's just making changes to the external environment. The tree is still going to produce rotten apples. Not only that, those new apples, because they're not connected to the vine, they're going to die too, Right? The only way to produce good, true, and lasting fruit is if the tree itself is uprooted and replaced by a healthy tree. And all of our attempts to change our environment and our behavior, behaviors to address the heart issues we have were like that farmer. The changes will eventually die and rotten fruit will eventually grow again because the root cause hasn't been addressed. Back when I was in college, I decided to bleach my hair. It was a terrible decision. I made lots of bad decisions back then. Uh, it was this not quite white, not quite blonde, kind of yellow weird thing that was produced on my head. But I had the consolation, the solace of knowing it's okay. That's not actually my hair color. My actual hair color will grow back again. Why? because my nature produces this color hair, right? When we try to make changes to our external environment, it's like bleaching our hair, thinking, I've done it, I've changed myself. No, those behaviors are just gonna come back again, potentially in a different form, but they will come back again. The nature within you has to change, and only God can produce that change, right? You may be living a comfortable life. You may have everything you think you need. But if you haven't been born again, Jesus says you're still under God's judgment. Because all of us who've sinned, according to our sinful natures, are under his judgment. God will judge us all for the sins we've committed, sins that grow naturally out of our corrupt nature. You and I must be born again. And here's the good news. You can be born again. God offers it to all people. You can be made new. The Christians to whom Peter was writing had already been born again. There are lots of people in this room today who've experienced this new birth, a new birth that comes when we move from, being, uh, from living for ourselves and seeing ourselves as the center of the universe to living for Jesus and seeing him as the center of the universe. Or in other words, trusting in him as our savior and following him as our Lord. In one sense, it's simple. Embrace him as your Lord and Savior, and God will give you a new heart and a new nature. In another sense, what is actually happening in the new birth is beyond comprehending and astoundingly powerful. As some of you obviously know, as Luke mentioned earlier today, that Tim Keller passed away this past week. Keller's preaching and writing have had a profound impact on so many. And in preaching on the new birth, Keller drew a connection between the new birth and natural birth that I want to encourage you with 
and to help you meditate on to, so you can see how amazing it is what God does in the new birth. He talked about the fact that none of us chose to be born, right? The fact that all, all of us can acknowledge. Nobody consulted us about being conceived. Nobody consulted us when we were born. Being born was something that happened to us. We came out. There we are. We exist. But unbeknownst to us, our birth came with great pain and cost to another, namely our mother. Though we came into the world without any recollection of the day, childbirth, especially in the pre-epidural age, is an excruciating and agonizingly painful experience for the mother. And in that, mothers provide a picture of Jesus' role in the new birth. Though we receive a new nature when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the great privilege of being born again. Our birth was not without cost to another. Jesus endured great agony and pain in our place, yet he did not live like most mothers tend to live. Some mothers pass away, sadly, in childbirth. He died on the cross for our sins so that you and I could be born again, given a new nature a new heart, a new mind. He then rose from the dead, proving that the new birth is not only possible, but certain for all who put their trust in him. So those who put their trust in him, God reaches down with his spiritual hands and removes our heart of stone and places within us a heart of flesh that has been cleansed by his spirit. It's only through faith in Jesus that we can experience the true personal change of being born again by God's spirit. And to those of you who have already put your trust in Jesus, consider what this means. You have been born again. You are a new creation. Like a caterpillar going into a cocoon, then comes out made of the same parts, but an entirely new creation. So radical is the change that, ha- that has taken place in you. You've been cleansed. Your heart of stone has been removed. You've been filled with God's spirit. Don't make the mistake, though, of thinking that this means you won't struggle with sin anymore. Right? Peter is about to tell these Christians who'd been born again about the need to continue putting off and fighting against sin. What it means, though, is that God has given you a new nature. A new power now lives within you. You have the power to say no to sin. You're no longer a slave to the, sins, to, to the sins and desires that you once struggled with. You now recognize that God is God, that he is the Lord of your life and worthy of living for, which means that the most necessary change that must occur in your life has already occurred. You've been brought from death to life. And if you're a Christian struggling with sin, I want to encourage you to bring it into the light. Confess it. Fight it by the Spirit, right? All of those things. But I also want to encourage you to remember that God is not going to kick you out of his family just because you're struggling with sin. He is a merciful God who calls sinners to come to him for regular forgiveness, for regular cleansing. We've been once for all justified, yes and amen. But he says, daily come to me as your father. Daily I will shower my mercy, my love, my cleansing love upon you. I mean, those of us who who struggle with sin as Christians sometimes start to think like God is going to be angry with me. He doesn't want me anymore in his family. But if you're a parent, would you kick one of your kids out of your family just because they're struggling with sin? Of course not, right? How much more certain can we be that God 
our father won't kick us out of his family because we've been struggling with sin. He's the one who caused us to be born again into his family in the first place. He is the God of steadfast love and devotion. The one who maintains love to thousands. He maintains it because he has lots of reasons not to maintain it, but he maintains it because he's a God of steadfast love and devotion. And he will keep every single one of his promises to you. And one of those promises is that he will keep you even as you stumble and fall. Keep putting your faith in him, saints. Through faith in Jesus, God produces true personal change. We also see in the text that he gives us real hope. That's our second point. Look again at verse three. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we're born again, we also receive real hope. It's important for us to understand how different the real hope of Christianity is from the hope that people normally have in this world, right? And the way that hope is normally used as a word refers to things we want to happen or wish would happen but can't be certain will happen. Sometimes it's about relatively unimportant things, right? I hope the weather forecast for our beach uh, vacation changes to nicer weather. Sometimes it's about important things. I hope my new job enables me to be more present with my family. I hope my child makes wise choices. Sometimes it's about ultimate things. I hope my biopsy comes back negative. Right? In all of those situations, we're using the word in a way that we recognize nothing is certain about the thing that we're hoping for. None of those things are certain. The weather may change or it may not. Your new job may actually end up demanding more time than your old job. Your child may make decisions and your biopsy may come back positive. That's not the type of hope that Peter is talking about here. Our hope as Christians isn't a wishing or a wanting for something to happen, but a certainty grounded on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why Peter says we have a living hope. It's a living hope because it's founded upon and grounded in a living Savior. I want you to understand this because understanding this has the power to transform your whole way of thinking and the way you just experience life in this fallen world. When Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated death. Let that sink in. The thing that steals hope from everyone, he defeated, killed it, crushed it. No more power over God's people, right? When he died on the cross and was buried, it was as though Jesus was swallowed by death. Death, with its gaping, hope-stealing jaws, opened wide its mouth and swallowed Jesus whole, just as it is done to every human who has ever lived. But then three days after swallowing Jesus whole, death got indigestion. It thought it had swallowed another hopeless victim, but in fact, it had swallowed the Lord of life who died in order to destroy the power of death. Death began to to shake and convulse until finally it exploded to pieces or like Jonah in the whale, 
spit Jesus out because it wasn't possible for death to hold him. Jesus was swallowed by the beast in order to defeat the beast from the inside out. And when he rose from the dead, after having defeated death, a new dawn emerged with him. The dawn of real hope. It's a real hope or a living hope, as Peter calls it, because our hope is in a living Savior. He lives beyond the boundaries of what death or any other corruption in this world can touch. It cannot touch him, and it cannot ultimately harm, ultimately, those who trust in him. And since Jesus will never die again, you and I who put our trust in him, we will always have real hope. Real hope, even in the face of the darkest possible circumstances. You can have that hope too if you put your trust in Jesus, who is the living hope of the world. Friends, none of the things that you might otherwise put your hope in will ultimately prove worthy of your hope. Let's just work this out. Uh, Let's say we have a person who's one of those rare individuals who leads a charmed life. Let's start in high school. Let's say this person was valedictorian of their class. Uh, They were homecoming king. They were star athlete. And their big hope was getting a scholarship to play at the school of their choice. And they got it. Amazing. They're thrilled, but then their hope was fulfilled. And now they need a new hope. And their new hope is that they would get a high-powered and high-paying job right out of college. They worked hard in school all four years. They finished at the top of their class. And again, because of all their hard work, they landed a high-powered, high-paying job in New York City. Dream come true. Another hope checked off the list. Wow. But now you need a new hope. What's next? Well, now time to to climb the corporate ladder. So this, this person climbs the corporate ladder. Boom. Done. They're making millions. They're the CEO of a major company. Another hope checked off the box. But now they need another hope because that one's been checked off. And now 30 years have passed as they climb the corporate ladder. So now their new hope is to save up for a comfy retirement. They do. Boom. Wow. Another hope checked off the box. But now they need another new hope. And now they're getting up there in years. What do you start to hope in now? Physical comfort while you approach the end of your life? Do you stare at death and recognize how it steals hope and meaning and purpose from everything? That's why the author of Ecclesiastes says, rich man, poor man, wise, fool, doesn't make a difference. Under the sun, death steals everything. What hope are you, what are you putting your hope in that's gonna make it through death? What's gonna cross through that deep abyss and come out the other side alive and intact? There's only one hope that will. It's the one who already went into death, conquered it it on our behalf and came out the Lord of life and offers himself as a living hope to all who would put their trust in him. Friends, none of our hard work or our accomplishments or our money, none of it will ultimately save us. Good, good to work hard. Good to pursue accomplishments and provide for your family. None of it is grounds for true, real hope. Right? When we think about kids who put their hope in being accepted by their peers, 
Right? We're, we're thinking about the, the charmed life of the individual who checked every hope off the box and then died. But think about the individuals who don't live that charmed life. What about the, the kid or the teen who puts their hope in being accepted by their peers but then ends up getting bullied? Or parents who put their hope in their kids only to tragically lose a child? What about people who put their hopes in their work only for their company to fold or for them to get laid off? Or people who hoped in enjoying retirement who retire and then as soon as they retire, get diagnosed with a terminal illness. Friends, these things happen. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Keller wrote, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. For the teens here, this is where I just wanna encourage you to take hold of the living hope that only Jesus can provide. You see, the world is going to tell you that you should live for yourself, live your truth, express yourself, follow your feelings and your heart, don't let anyone tell you what you should do or who you should be. And while that sounds attractive, it, it's attractive because in our flesh we, we all want that, it's ultimately an empty way to live and will only end up hurting you. I don't know if teens still do this, but back when I was in high school, one of the practical jokes that we would play on each other is we would wait for somebody to be sitting down. We would only do this with friends that we wanted to play a practical joke on. We'd be waiting for them to be sitting down in class and then we would pull the seat right out from underneath of them so that they would, boom, slam right onto the ground and we would laugh and have a good old time. Look at you, look at what we did to you, right? I, again, I hope that that doesn't happen anymore. That's what we did in high school. Right? They would wait until you were fully committed. You've got to wait until the hip break, breaks a certain angle and you see, see the person rocking back on their heels. That's when you know we can pull it. Right? The seat gets pulled out from underneath you. That's what Satan does with things like living for yourself, living for your own truth, living for prestige, money, comfort, and power. When you go to put your full weight on it, you will find that it's not there to sit on. There is no hope in those things, right? That's what, the, that's what that means is this. In a fallen world, all hopes but one will be dashed. There's only one source of real hope, a hope that can't be dashed, a real hope that can bring us through the darkest circumstances, and that's the living hope that's found in Jesus, who went toe-to-toe with death and delivered a knockout blow. If you're deciding to live apart from Jesus, you have to come to terms with the fact that you have a limited amount of time to experience joy and pleasure because sorrow, hopelessness, and death are coming. But for the Christian, the joys we experience now are only appetizers for a joy so delectable that our taste buds will explode. And the sorrows we experience are not precursors to death, meaninglessness, and hopelessness, but acute reminders that our only hope is in Jesus Christ, right? And Jesus is coming back to do away with sadness, sorrow, pain, and tears. He's coming back to do away with all of death's accomplices and restore creation. And all who put their hope in him in this life will possess him as our living hope now and forever in the life to come. Knowing this enables us as Christians to endure all hardship, every trial, all suffering, no matter how terrible that suffering may be. Christians 
right? We're not promised that we'll be protected from suffering. Instead, we're promised that we'll have a living hope that will bring us through our suffering and even bring us through death itself. Faith in Jesus produces true personal change and real hope. Finally, we see that it also produces a secure future. Look again with me at the passage. God calls us to be born again to a living hope and also to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Through faith in Jesus, we receive a secure future. This idea of inheritance is one that most people would understand and make sense given what Peter has just said, right? Inheritances are gifts of land, money, or other assets that parents leave to their children when they pass away. And given that Peter has just described how Christians have been born again into a new family with a new father, we now stand in line to receive a new inheritance from God, our Father. But what is that inheritance? What is it made of? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, what you find is that in the relationship between God and his, the nation of Israel, the inheritance that God had prepared for them was the land of Canaan. Think of Psalm 105. He is the Lord our God. He remembers his covenant forever. The covenant he made with Abraham, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for your inheritance. It was the land of Canaan that was to be the nation of Israel's inheritance. It was the land that God had promised to give them, the land that was like a restored Eden, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, a land of true delight where the nation of Israel would dwell in the presence of God himself. Right? You might remember when God brought the people of Israel into the land, the tribes of Israel were arranged in a somewhat rectangular pattern around what? Can any of the kids tell me? What were the, what were the tribes arranged around in the land of Canaan when they, when they took their camps? What was in the middle of them? Can any of the kids guess? Abram? The temple or the tabernacle. God's presence dwelled in the middle of the people as they arranged themselves in the land around them, right? The tabernacle, the place where God dwelled. God was at the center and the people of Israel were arranged in camps around God's presence in the land of their inheritance. And it was a land flowing with milk and honey, right? It produced abundantly for the people of Israel. They were blessed in their fields and they were blessed in their flocks. The inheritance that God gave them was glorious as they lived in his presence. But the inheritance of the land of Canaan is not like the inheritance that Peter describes. Peter describes an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That was not Canaan. God promised that Canaan would be those things if the people of Israel would obey his commandments and walk in his ways. But if they didn't, he promised that the land would be corrupted by sin, and it was. The people sinned against God and defiled the land. They shed one another's blood. They oppressed one another. They took advantage of one another. They lied, cheated, stole. They worshiped false gods and rejected God's ways. And so God brought the curse upon the land that he promised. The land that was flowing with milk and honey was struck with famine. The land where God's people were promised protection was invaded and defiled by the Assyrians and Babylonians when they took the nation of Israel off into exile. And that unfading land became a fading memory in their minds. 
But that land of Canaan wasn't the ultimate inheritance that God had in mind for his people. Canaan was only meant to be a picture of a greater land that God had prepared for his people. It was meant to be a picture of a truly imperishable, undefiled, and unfading land. A land where there is no more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. A land where God's people dwell around the immediate presence of God in a restored creation forever. And that, friends, who have trusted in Jesus is the inheritance that now awaits us. That is the secure future that God is guaranteeing and protecting for all who've trusted in Jesus. Just like with the idea of being born again, Peter isn't coming up with this idea of inheritance on his own. He's drawing straight from Jesus' teaching. Jesus told his disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that you may be where I am also. This is what we later learn in the New Testament is the promise of the new heavens and new earth. After Jesus returns to judge the earth, God is going to purify the physical earth with fire and create a new heavens and new earth, an imperishable, undefiled, an unfading inheritance for all who've put their trust in Jesus. But more glorious, friends, than the promise of a new heavens and new earth is that in is the promise that in the inheritance we will dwell in the immediate presence of God forever. It's when we receive that inheritance that Aaron's prayer for God's face to shine upon all of us will come true as we will gaze upon the beauty of his face. We will be absorbing the rays of pure light that beam forth from his loving gaze forever. It's there that the God who is now shrouded in darkness and clothed with the clouds will reveal his splendorous beauty for all to see. It's there that the God who feeds us now by his word will feed us by his hand. It's there that the God who speaks to us through his word will speak to us face to face where we will hear the power of the voice of the Lord that strips the forest bare and we will all cry, glory. It's there that we will behold myriads of angels arranged in festal assembly singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. It's there that we will behold the saints who have gone before us, now glorified, dwelling in perfect unity, living with one mind, being of one accord, and sweetly singing, worthy is our Savior King. Loud let his praises ring. Praise, praise for I. It's there that we will behold the throne of God in all of its glory. And from the throne we will drink from the river of the water of life sparkling and crystalline in its clarity and purity, pure and refreshing, giving eternal life to the soul. And there, friends, we will no longer pant for the Lord like a deer pants for water because we will lift our head from the streams of life and we will behold upon the throne the king in all his beauty. We will see the lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we will thank him 
and praise him forever because he is the only reason that any of us have any claim to that glorious inheritance in the first place. All of us were like the prodigal son. All of us said to God, no, we'll take the inheritance now. Thank you, you can die. And what did we do? We went off into life, squandered it, spent it on useless things, put our hope in things that can't sustain us, that will never sustain us, tried to change ourselves though we didn't have God's spirit. We took the inheritance and said, no, thank you, God. And what did he do? He sent the perfect son, the son who didn't reject him, who never disobeyed him, who not only obeyed God out of duty, but out of pure delight because he knew that God's ways were good. Jesus came into the world dying in our place on the cross, bearing the judgment we deserve for our sins, rose from the dead, defeating death, offering himself as living hope and saying to all, if you come to me, you will dwell in my presence forever. That is the inheritance that he guarantees to all who follow him. And you can know your future is secure because God guarantees that it's secure. Not just that the heavenly inheritance will be kept for you, but you will be kept for it. Look again at the passage. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, to receive that glorious inheritance, we must exercise faith until the end. But, 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 but that means that I could, I could lose it. It depends on me and I can't be certain that I will continue till the end. Wrong. While it is true that you must exercise faith, we have certainty now that our future is secure because we are guarded by God's power through faith. God's power protects us because his power is the means by which our faith is sustained. Peter wants to encourage you with the truth that God will preserve your faith through all of the sufferings, through all of the trials, through all of the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death, and he will, he will ultimately bring you to dwell in the presence of his glorious light. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but I will raise him up on that last day. True change real hope, secure inheritance, can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ today, is yours if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these glorious truths. Cause our hearts to embrace them fully. Remove the stony places that have grown up in our hearts over the last week. Cause us to be tender to and attentive to your spirit. To forsake every sin that entangles us and trips us up and keeps us from coming to you. To run to your merciful embrace, knowing that you are the God of mercy who welcomes sinners into his presence, that we might receive a living hope and a secure inheritance. Keep us until the end, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.